Well, good evening and uh, welcome to Uni Church. My name is Rowan, uh, one of the pastors here at Auckland AV and Uni Church. Um, and tonight, I think, is a great night to think through what God has to say to us about really some key matters. Uh, some key matters in our lives, some key matters uh, in the life of the world around us and society around us. So why don't we ask God right now that he would speak to us through that word that we've just heard, that he'd change us to be more like his son. Why don't we pray together? Father God, we thank you so much for the privilege tonight to come and again hear what you have to say. Lord, for many of us, we've had weeks that have been good. For many of us, weeks that have been hard and difficult. We ask that tonight, that through your spirit, you would work to point out where we can be comforted. That you would show us in your word where we need to seek our fullest passion and desire. And you might help us, Lord, to come away having heard you, the creator of all things, the sustainer of the universe, speak to us here in Auckland. And that we might live our lives in response to what you have to say. Pray this, Lord, in your son's great name. Amen. What is God's will for your life? What does he want you to do with the rest of your life, your next day, your next week? It's a question that I hear Christians ask all the time. What does God want me to do? What career do I take? What, what papers do I, do I kind of undergo at university? How should I act? Where should I spend my, my time and my energy? What is God's will for my life? It's also the question that pushes many people away from Jesus. I like what Jesus has to offer. I like the idea of salvation and life forever. I just don't like him telling me what his will for my life is. I don't want him telling me what to do. I want to live my life my way. And so, so many people walk away from the God of the Bible because of his demands, what he requires. There's a perception that Christianity is really just a religion full of rules. It's like one big fact rule book, what I should do, what I need to do. Uh, it's like God is just telling me, this is how you should live, this is what you should do. He's like the overbearing parent. You're like, just give me a break, right? But I want to say, the Bible and Christianity is far more profound than just a book of rules. The Christian life, as we kind of understand it throughout Thessalonians, throughout the whole Bible, is a, is a response it's a response to just the phenomenal goodness of God. It's not some checklist of how I have to live or how to get right with God, but a response to what God has already done for us. We have to hear what Paul has to say to us this week by hearing how he started the whole letter and how he opened up about what God had done in the lives of these Thessalonians. So flick back with me and your Bibles are on the screen to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. I want you to hear how the Thessalonians responded to God. 1 Thessalonians 1.3 We recall in the presence of our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love and endurance of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, knowing your election, brothers, loved by God. He's like, we recall the way that you trusted 
the message, the news of who Jesus is and what he has done, that, that faith that is expressed. Remember how you, you loved one another because of it. And the endurance, the, the hope that you had because of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, the Thessalonians, when they heard this message from Paul, Silas and Timothy, they didn't hear a list of commands that they must do. They heard that the true and living God had come. That Jesus had died their death, died in in their place. That God's judgment was real. And instead of them having to face God on their own two feet, Jesus came and took the penalty for us on our behalf. And then he rose from the dead, showing that life after death is possible. And that is what has been offered to them. That is the hope that they have. They've been invited into this family called God's family. They get to call God their dad and Jesus their brother. And for that, they left the idols they were serving. We saw a couple of weeks ago what idolatry was, was really serving anything or anyone more or in the greatest position of our lives or more than God. It's putting something in the place of the one who rules and created and sustains the universe, something other than him. And these Thessalonians put aside everything because they were amazed at what God had done for them, at who Jesus was and what he offered them. And that's why they had faith. They trusted what Jesus did in their place. That was the hope that they had. And so, in response to what God had done, they wanted to please the true and living God. The reason they turned aside from idols was because they saw who Jesus was, because of what he'd already done. They wanted to please him. Did you hear that? Christianity is 100% a response to what God has already done in Jesus. Christianity is 100% a response to what God has already done in Jesus. It's not a list of of check items that we've got to tick off in order to to kind of gain God's forgiveness or gain God's pleasure. It's kind of like a good relationship between a child and their parent. You know, if, if you come from a loving family, you would have experienced that the love that comes from a loving parent, where the parents love the child no matter what they do because they're their child. They care for them, they, they, they look after them, they, they long for the child to do what's right. The child doesn't need to please the parents in, in order to make the parents love them. That's weird. If the child's consistently trying to kind of work out, oh, I want to please mum and dad so that they'll love me, that, that's wrong. That's kind of a perversion of the way things are. We are children of our parents. And by that very fact, they love us. And by that very fact, it's right that we want to please them for they're our parents. So a child tries to please their parent, not in order to gain their acceptance and love, but because they already have it. And so it is with a Christian life, right? It's, it's not trying to gain God's acceptance. It's not trying to somehow do something for God that will make him go, you know what, you're okay, you've done enough. No, it's living in response to the love and acceptance he's already shown us. And what greater picture of love could anyone show than Jesus himself, the one through whom all things were created, by whom the universe is sustained, that one dying in your place. If that doesn't say, I love you, nothing does. And so the Christian life is a life that's in response to God Inviting us in to his family. 
It's a life that trusts in what Jesus has done on the cross in our place. And so the Christian life really is a desire to please God because of what he's already done. What I want to ask you tonight is, is that how you're planning to spend the rest of your life? Is it your passion and purpose in life to please God? Is is that how you make your decisions in life? Is that how you work out what God's will is? You think, well, what pleases him? How do I live in response to what he has done for me? Is that what orders your priorities? If it isn't, then maybe it could be that you are a Christian, right? You're like, yeah, I trust Jesus. I want to follow him. He is the king of the universe. But your kind of passion's growing cold. Your heart is kind of like, yeah, he's just just become a little bit monotonous. If that's you, I want you to think today. Maybe the reason God isn't coming up on your radar very often is you've forgotten what he's done for you. You've forgotten you are called a child of God. Or maybe for you, perhaps there's, there's something in your life that you're ashamed of. Some sin that you're kind of stuck in that has caused you to deliberately put distance between you and God. And so your Christian life hasn't got that same passion and purpose of wanting to please the creator who died for us because, well, you know you're not pleasing him in one area or in a few areas. And so you just slowly step away until one day you walk out the door. Is that you tonight? Or maybe if you've got no passion to please him, Maybe your concept of Christianity isn't actually right. You're viewing Christianity as this tick box religion. If I'm going to be a Christian, I've got to do this, do that. I can tick it all off and go, Whew, I'm, a, I'm a good, happy Christian now. Look at me, I look like Ned Flanders. How great is that? Right? That is not Christianity. Not the Christianity of the Bible. Perhaps you've got no passion to please him because you haven't yet seen the wonder that the creator of the universe died in your place, that he loves you, that he's extended his love to you in Jesus. Or maybe you're sitting here tonight, assuming that the way you live is pleasing God, without actually having worked out what does it look like to please him, when you might in fact not be pleasing him. So here in this letter, God tells us what pleases him. What is God's will for my life? How should I live in response to what you've done for me? You want to know how to please God? Here it is. Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1. He says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and encourage you in the Lord Jesus as you've received from us how you must walk and please God as you are doing, do so even more. Verse 3, for this is God's will, your sanctification. God's will for your life is your sanctification. There you go. You can go home now, right? Sorted. Like, what, what is sanctification? It feels like this kind of big Christian jargony word. They're like, what, what is that? I hate it when people talk in jargon I don't understand. It's like Christianese, I, I can't handle it. And Christians speak in... So we need to understand what this actually means. Uh, The word just means to be set apart, to be 
set aside for one purpose, different from the rest. It's actually the word holy, holyfication. And holy means to be set aside, set apart. Um, God is saying, you want to please me? Then I want you to be like me. I want you to have my character, to be radically different from the world that is so hell-bent on serving itself. I want you to be radically different from your old life. I want you to be radically different so that you might live for me, the true and living God, the one who sustains you, the one who loves you, who has died for you. Like any good father, God wants his children to display the family likeness, to look like our dad, to be like him. That's what sanctification means. It's it's the process of being made more and more like Jesus, who is the exact image of God. But so often we want to know, no, but I want to know more, God. I I want to know what career I should take. I want to know what... what, um, where I should invest my money, what color car I should have, what socks I should put on, who I should date. Lord, help me to pick an outfit today that will help me meet the right man. My outfit today will be determine who I meet and the rest of my life. And we expect God to put some neon signs on the wall and go, this one. You want to know how to live? You want to know God's will for your life? It's this. Be like Jesus. Simple. But we want more. Well, how about you work at that? And when you've got that sorted, then you can find out more of God's will. Because I tell you, that is how God has made us. To please him is to be like his son, to be like him, to display that likeness. It's to be sanctified, to be set apart for God, to serve him. Now, throughout the Bible, this word sanctification, it's kind of used two different ways. Uh, There's the way that it's used at when someone becomes a Christian, when they first say, yes, I trust Jesus. At that moment, the Bible would say that that person is sanctified. They're set apart for God. They are holy because as God looks at them, he sees Jesus. He sees their sin forgiven. He sees them in, in God's sight, perfect. And there's a sense in which that's this complete work of God that Jesus did at the cross. When he died in our place, it's done, it's finished. You, if you are a Christian, can say you are sanctified. But then there's this kind of other way that it's used throughout Scripture, where sanctification seems to be this continuing work of God in our lives. Yes, we declared right in God's sight, but he's got this process of making us more and more and more like him. And how we live the rest of the Christian life is that we're to be people who are growing in our likeness of our great God. And we need to partner with God in doing this. That idea that we're declared right in God's sight and when we trust in Jesus, that's totally God's work. And then now we, we kind of partner with God in becoming more and more like him, putting him first, pleasing him in line with his word through the work of his spirit. We continue to do so more and more. And that's what Paul has in view here, this process of being made more and more like Jesus. And as you kind of look at this passage, you see that this is God's will for every Christian. It's to be like Jesus. Verse 1, Paul says, focus on this more and more. What does that mean? It means no matter how long you've been a Christian, there is more work to be done. You can't say, look, I've arrived. Here I am. Look at me. I'm just like Jesus. Because, well, just ask anyone else. It's not true. (laughs) We're not perfect. 
I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. And this side of Jesus' return, we won't be. So Paul says, this is the Christian life. Work on pleasing God, remember, not in order to be right before him, but because you're already part of his family. So we can never say, that's enough. I've done my work now as a Christian. I've kind of arrived. We need to keep saying, no, Lord, please make me more and more like Jesus. Help me understand your word. Help me understand your will and how we are to live and what matters for you. Help me to look into your word and be seeped in it so that I might know you better. And as I do that, that I might live to be more like your son, that I might live in such a way that I can keep pleasing you. And it really covers every area of life. Jesus doesn't just say, I'm the Lord of your Sundays. I'm the ruler of what you do on Sundays, but the other days you can do whatever you want. Live for yourself, have fun, you know? No, he says the best way to live, the best way to have fun is to put me as, as number one in everything. Over your morals, over your time, your choices, your, your passions, your hopes, your dreams, your, your money, your relationships, sex, everything. But here, to this Thessalonian church, Paul talks about two specific areas to focus on. Sex and love. And after uh, this talk, we're going to have a time of questions. We're going to have question time. And really, we'd love you to write whatever questions you've got. I want to be as kind of clear as we can. I'm going to invite someone down tonight who can kind of answer from a different perspective from me. But we really want to have a good time of questions where we can ask, what does this look like? How are we to think through pleasing God in the area of sexuality and love? So there's a number up on the screen you can text. Please text it. It's going to be awkward if we just see you for 15 minutes without questions. So as you have questions, ask them. You don't need to put your hand up. No one will know it's you. Just go through to a number and we'll put it on the screen. We won't put your number underneath it. So everyone's like, oh, I know who that is. (laughs) So let's look at love. Verse 9. About brotherly love. You don't need me to write you because you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. In fact, you were doing this towards all the brothers in the entire region of Macedonia, but we encourage you, brothers, to do so even more, to seek to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, so that you may walk properly in the presence of outsiders and not be dependent on anyone. Now, I'm not going to spend heaps of time today on what it looks like to love one another. We spent a whole week last week looking at that. But there's a couple of things that I do want to bring out of this passage. And that's this. The way that we act toward one another matters. The way we act towards each other really does matter. Those in God's family are to act like God's family. To do this more and more. Paul says in Romans 13... That the only debt we are to have outstanding at the end of our lives is the debt of loving one another. You can pay off everything else, but you can never love others to the point of being like, I'm done. So Paul's saying here, we need to care for one another. We need to care for the family of God. And it's more than that, did you see? It's to care for those who are outside the family. See, that's the whole reason that we work. Some people are like, you know, work is my calling. What is my calling? How does God want me to kind of spend my life in my vocation? No, biblically, work flows out of this ethic of love. In the Bible, the reason that we work is partially here to love others, 
That's why we work with our hands to, to kind of be a positive influence in society. It is never our mission, the God-given drive of what we are to do, to work. But we work in order to love the world around us because of the gospel. We're driven towards serving Jesus and loving the world because of that. And so work really is an outgoing of our love. Now that means as you're picking a job, you go, okay, what is God's will for my life? Where should I work? Work somewhere where you can love people. Don't become a bank robber. That's not loving, even if you're Robin Hood. Like, you actually need to think, well, this is someone else's money. Don't work for a company that's ripping people off. Don't work for a company that um, doesn't care about people. But actually think about, I want to work for a place where I can do good, where I can see good happen, where I can be a blessing because God has freed me to love. And that's why I work. And you also see that the reason we work is to provide so that we're not kind of sponging off others. Continually walking around saying, cover dollar. Like, it's it's not the way we're supposed to be. We're not supposed to kind of continually be asking for others. We're supposed to be able to provide for ourselves, remembering that God is the one that has provided all things. So Paul says we work to love others and provide for our families. The second area of kind of sanctification that Paul wants us to focus on tonight And that God wants to say to us all, how do I know God wants to say this to you tonight? Because God's in control of everything. And guess what? You're here. And I'm going to say this. So he wants you to hear this. Verse 3. For this is God's will, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, so that each of you knows how to control his own body in sanctification and honor. Not with lustful desires like the Gentiles who don't know God. Now, if it's your first week, well, you're kind of new amongst us here, and you're like, oh, you Christians, you're always talking about sex. You know, I've got this problem with sex, you know. Some Freudian depravity happened when you were a baby, and somehow now you've got this hookup thing, and you're just like, oh, you can't have sex, and you want to make all these rules. These guys are such spoils. But I want to say, the reason we're talking about sex tonight is because it's here in the passage. We want to let God set the agenda. And God's the one who made sex, so he's got the right to tell us how to best use it. And so tonight what we're going to see is the way God, the creator of all things, says sex should be used. See, for so many of us, we think it doesn't matter what we do with our body. It's mine. I can do what I want with it. Why does it, why does it affect God? But God loves you too much to let you hold that view. So that's why he places warning signs throughout the whole Bible to say it matters. The way you live with your body matters. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul kind of explained to the Corinthian church that your bodies are not your own. It's kind of an offensive idea if you think about it. They were bought with a price by Jesus' blood. He died in your place. He bought you back. He has paid for your rebellion against God. And so therefore, we belong to God. Your bodies are not your own. God owns everything. And our bodies are part of that everything and they belong to him. And then when we think about what marriage is, we see that marriage matters for a number of reasons, right? Marriage is kind of like the building block of society. Why do I say that? Each generation is generated through marriages. Marriage is kind of like the social fabric of of our society. 
Um, it's where children come from. It's not a stork. We can chat about that later. But they, they, they come from people who are committed to one another. And the research shows that the most stable um, kind of situation for anyone to be brought up in is that of a committed relationship where the father and the mother are committed to one another for life. You want to mess with society? You want to muck around and see what happens? Then mess around with marriage. Because it's the foundation of what society is built on. How do I know that these are my family? Well, marriage defines that. It sets up a new family unit. The whole way we act towards one another, if you think about it, is defined really in families. And marriage is a key part of that. A society that pleases God, a society that lives with its that lives in the way that its creator designed it to, is to have sex within the marriage of a male and a female. And that's the way God made it. Uh, it's kind of like, just imagine for a minute, um, you are the maker of like a, a Honda Accord. I don't know why I chose that car. Apparently, it, no, I was going to say a really bad joke. No, I'll say it anyway and you can just laugh at me. Um, apparently, it's the car Jesus drove, right? Because like, all the disciples, they were all together in one accord with Jesus. <laughs> yeah. Pray for my kids right now. You see, God made the universe. And he made us to live within the bounds of the universe. Imagine you made a Honda Accord. You, you were the, the person that kind of came up with it. And you kind of said that when you put the, the stick in the middle of the car in R, the car goes backwards. Right? That's the way you made it. It's how it works. It works best that way. And then some young punk comes along and buys one of your Honda Accords and says, you know what? I know how to use this better than the manufacturer. So they kind of drive it into their driveway and they're like, I want to reverse out. But it's like... Stuff putting this in reverse, because that's who, who does that? I'm going to put it in D, because D is great. I just like D. And they go, actually, no, more than that, I'm going to go down to step one. So I'm going to put it in step one instead of D. There we go. And step one is, how do I get the car out of the garage? So I put it in one and then floor it. Of course, they're going to smash through the house and make up a massive mess. Why? Because you're not using the car the way that the manufacturer designed it to be used. We all think, we know this better. I know sex better. And so we think, let's, let's muck around with it. Let's, let's try stuff. And let's do things differently than the way that the creator of the universe says. Newsflash doesn't work. He made it this way. He's not some sadistic guy in the clouds going, ha ha, I'm, I'm stopping you from using the thing that I've made for your pleasure and to serve me. I'm not stopping you from using it the best way. I want you to use it the best way. So God, because he loves us, because he loves his family, is saying, this is the best way to use sex. It's not to rip you off. not to deny you pleasure you would otherwise have. He's saying sex in its right context is good. I made it good. So many people hear that Christians saying, oh, sex is bad. Sex isn't bad. God invented it. Sex is great. It's to be used within marriage. It bonds two people together. It, it causes families to stay together. It creates children. If you didn't know that. It's good. It's part of the purpose. It's part of the reason why homosexual marriage can never be what heterosexual marriage is. Never. You will not have two biological parents of the child that comes out of a homosexual marriage. You cannot do it. It it can't be that. It doesn't work. The plumbing's wrong. It doesn't happen. So Paul tells the Thessalonians this. Avoid sexual immorality. 
Now, sexual immorality is kind of this broad word that's used for anything outside of God's design for sex. It's using sex in some way that, that, that isn't with your spouse, whether that's before you're married or during marriage. Sex is for marriage. If you're not married yet and you're like, what can we do? The answer is nothing. Sex is for marriage. Are you married? No. There's your answer. It's simple. And then you think through the culture that Paul wrote this to. In the 4th century, we kind of have a, a guy called Demosthenes. He's a guy who's writing. It's a little bit later than this, this 200, 250 years after this, this letter was written. But here we have a view into the Greek culture of the way that they viewed sexuality. And it's funny, you know, we kind of think we're progressive. We're moving forward. We're, we're offering new ways to live. Check this out. Mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure concubines for the daily care of our persons, but wives to bear us legitimate children and to be faithful guardian of our households. If you want to have a legacy, get a wife. That's where you have your security and that's, that's how you'll do that. And then uh, if you just need to get it out of your system, well, that's what concubines are for. And if you want to have fun and passion and pleasure, well, that's why you have a mistress. That's the normal way of the way society's working. Sleep around. The idea when, when Paul wrote this letter that sex was confined to two people for life, confined to marriage, was, was odd. We haven't changed much today, have we? Sex sells. It's in the air we breathe and the billboards we walk past and the television shows that are in front of us all the time. One in four children under the age of 12 have viewed pornography. One in four, a quarter. About 64 to 68% of young adult men use porn at least once every week. One out of three of you statistically, sorry, two out of three of you statistically are viewing porn weekly. And for women, it's 18% weekly. Uh, seven, another 17% of men and another 30% of women use porn one to two times a month. They're just the statistics. I'm not saying anything against you here, but Paul is saying swim against the culture. Don't do it. To use sex in any way other than God intended it is going to create a mess of your garage. It's going to create a mess of your house, a mess of your family. It's going to be a mess. It will rip you apart and it will rip society apart. But so often we make false peace with ourselves and say, ah, you know, it's okay. You know, 68% of other guys are doing it. But we've got to not make excuses. Not become sentimental about sin and play the victim to say, oh, you know, I couldn't really help it. It's just how it was. I just, it's just how I'm wired. It was part of my upbringing. If you bring a baby tiger into your house, right, and you feed it and you look after it and you call it fluffy, and you're like, this is such a great little tiger. Don't be surprised if one day you wake up and Fluffy's eating you alive. Fluffy is a tiger. Tigers eat people. Sin is like a tiger. Now, someone uh, once told me when I was about 15, he's like, sexual sin especially is like a tiger. It's like if you feed that tiger, it's, it's going to just grow and grow and grow. You try and walk into a cage with a tiger and see what happens. Anyone ever tried that? Well, rock, it doesn't end well. You can YouTube it, right? Tigers are made to kill people, and they do. 
Like uh, me and the tiger, unless I've got a gun, I'm gone. I, I, I can't do it. But he said, if you starve that tiger, if you don't feed it, if you decide that I'm, I'm not going to kind of feed this great animal, this beast, then after a while it grows smaller and smaller and smaller until it's just a weak kitten. Such a helpful line for me when things pop up on a screen or thoughts pop into my head to say, starve the tiger. If you feed this, it will consume you. No matter whether you call it fluffy or Satan, it's the same person. Starve the tiger. Such helpful words. But the truth is, sexual sin never comes out of the blue. It doesn't just like you're walking along one day and you're like, oh, am I having an affair today? It just doesn't happen that way. It's the predictable result of natural processes. Relationships are neglected. In marriage, and then a mind gets exposed to impurity. Tomorrow's character is made up of today's thoughts. You ever heard that saying before? Tomorrow's character is made up of today's thoughts. We become what we think. And the question is, what are you filling your mind with? If you're thinking about this stuff all the time, if you're walking along and kind of making comments on the side or thinking about, oh, that person would be great to be with, or I wish my spouse was more like this or my girlfriend was more like that, then you're going to end up being that way. The battle is in our minds. I've got a friend, I might have used this illustration before, but he works for the riot police. Um, so they're kind of like the, when everything goes to custard, right? And everything's bad. The police are like, we're out. They send in the riot squad with their big tanks and they're like, hut, 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 guys. And they're kind of big and beefy and they've got bazookas, right? That's great. I think a fun way to be in the police. But anyway, he's a Christian. He's been quite active as a Christian. Uh, and um, he's told his non-Christian mates that as a Christian, he doesn't want to treat women that way. Um, and so often when they're driving around, they'll see women. Uh, and by the way, uh, just, just a kind of a hint into the way guys work. If there's someone and they're attractive and, and a guy doesn't notice them, you're probably dead. The way that guys work is we're visually wired. We, we see and notice women who are attractive. That's just kind of how God made us. But to go back and look and to start doing things in our minds and our heads, that is a problem. To notice someone's attractive, that's, that's fine. But it's that second look. It's that looking back. And this mate of mine um, who's in the, in the riot squad, he would say, I'm not going to have a second look. Uh, and so all his mates would be going, they'd be going down the street in the car and they'd see someone and they'd be like, I'm taking his second look. They'd all be like, I want to take it. I want to take it. But they, what they recognized was that he was living a, a way that was very different. The battle is in your minds. And he took the blame of others, the ridicule in some ways, but to say, I want to put God's way first. In marriage, I want to say, I don't know how many of us are married, but in marriage, if the sex has stopped, you've got to do something about that. And that's not just for the guy to go, yeah, Rowan said more sex, we need more sex, in caveman voice. <laughs> that's not the way God designed us. Generally, men have sex in order to feel loved. And women have sex because, because they feel loved. So that means our hu- husbands that are here, if you're going to be married in the future, you need to love your wife, pursue your wife. Don't just go, oh, and bring me a beer with my sex. Like, it, it, it's not going to work. Now, this might be a new idea to some guys and to some husbands. 
You can love your wife in other ways apart from sex. Actually possible. Sex is not the only way you can love your spouse. And I think finding out those other ways is actually a really good way to bond you together as a couple. Um, and in fact, finding out that might lead to more sex. But what's your motives? <laughs> One of the things that um, someone said to us early on in our marriage was two great questions that Sarah and I try and ask each other at least each month. A, f- a friend of mine just blog posted, he asked this daily to his wife. And I'm like, man, what are you doing? The question is, do you feel loved by me? That's what the guys need to ask the wives. Do you feel loved by me? Ephesians 5 is really clear. Um, the, the, the men are to lay down their lives and to wa- love their wives like Christ loved the church. And for women, you see in Ephesians 5, the role for them is not necessarily to love back. They are called to love, but to respect their husbands. One of the ways husbands feel respected is when wives do offer their whole lives to their husbands, just like husbands are called to offer their whole lives, which includes their whole bodies. Well, what are the vows? Um, oh, no, they're gone. No, they're not. Um, they just ran off my, my, my head this morning. Um, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish as long as we both shall live. They're the promises you make is to offer yourselves to one another. And so that question to ask, do you feel loved by me? It's husbands to wives. Uh, and wives to husbands, do you feel respected by me? I want to say particularly to the wives... Don't hold sex as some sort of bargaining chip. I'll give you sex if you do X, Y, and Z. It's not some power play. You've already offered your lives to one another. And husbands, I want to say, don't demand sex. That's not the way God's designed us, the makeup of men and women. Paul says our bodies belong to God, and in marriage, you've offered them to one another. Withholding love and intimacy in marriage is just as much a sin for both parties as misplaced sex. Did you hear the word there that was important? Withholding love and intimacy in marriage. Sex is for marriage. I hope you've heard that tonight. We have some more questions on that in a minute. But the answer to sexual sin is not merely a list of commands to say, stop that, don't do this, you can't do that. Uh, it's not that at all. The answer to sexual sin is to look to the one who has made sex, the one who has made us. It's to seek to please him, to see the hope and joy that comes from being called a child and God and see the joy that he has for us. If you think that your ultimate joy will be found in sex, you're going to be sorely disappointed. Just ask anyone who's married. Yeah, sometimes it's great. And it's the majority of times. It gets better, yes. But really, to live a fulfilled life, you need to be having sex or have at least had sex once. The most fulfilled life we ever see on the face of the planet, the perfect human, never had sex, nor was he married. Perhaps it may be that for you, marriage is an idol you need to repent of. Sex is an idol you need to say, there is a far greater pleasure to be had knowing my God, understanding what he's done for me, living his way in the world around me. Fill your minds with that. Don't just say no, 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 no. Say yes to pleasing God, understanding his will for how you will live. That is what we're called to do. How easy it is to turn marriage into our Messiah and sex into our Savior. It will not save you. But sometimes we need help in focusing on our great God. 
Sometimes it really helps to remember how to live and accountability for others to go, how are you going in this area? In fact, I want to say, all of us need that. I want to say, speak to someone. If you've been struggling in areas, if you've got, maybe if you haven't been struggling, you've just been doing it anyway, talk to someone tonight. Now, talk to someone, it doesn't need to be me, it can be me. But chat to someone who's here to go, look, I'd love you to pray for me in this area. You've got to remember, if we have trusted in Jesus, our sins are paid for on the cross, nailed to that cross, forgiven. Paid in full is stamped across everything we've ever said, ever done, or ever will do. And often guilt kind of traps us into more lies and deception. And so we make up more lies and more lies and more lies. We just keep lying to ourselves, to our friends, to our spouse and to our God. But here's the thing. You can't lie to God and get away with it. He knows what you're thinking. He sees all. He knows all. He's saying, stop it. You're missing out on true pleasure. Satan's greatest power, I think, is to let us think that we, we can't let anyone know. If they know about this, they'll see that I'm a fraud and I, uh, that, I'm, that I've sinned in these areas. Really? Every single person in this room is a sinner. So trying to pretend you're not. We've all turned our back on God. What a great place it would be where we can just honestly go, yeah, look, I'm struggling in this area. And everyone isn't like, oh, I can't believe you're sinning. Don't ever respond that way. Uh, as someone who's going through um, some sort of thing that, that's large, don't be like, oh, I can't believe that. That's, that's horrible. You're such a vile person. All sin is vile before God. All of us are beggars at the foot of the cross going, we need Jesus' forgiveness. And you know what? He's offered it to you. Forgiven, paid in full. Whatever you've done, come to him. Confess your sin. Tell someone who's who knows you, who knows Jesus, share it with them. And you'll feel, I guarantee you, as soon as you tell them, Satan loses the battle. You'll feel the weight lift from your shoulders and say, I love you to pray for me. And then you'll be able to move towards focusing on the great joy we have in Jesus. That's how God's spirit works. He, he points us to the, the word and who Jesus is and makes that come alive to see the astronomical significance of the love of God in Jesus. And he satisfies our desires in him. If your desires are being satisfied in anything other than ultimately in Jesus, then you're missing out. You're living a half-baked life. There'll be some of you here tonight whose sexual issues spring from someone else's sin. It may be a father's abuse, a husband's betrayal. And it can be hard to talk about that because of the deep hurt involved. I want to say, remember, justice will be served. Verse 6, Paul says, The Lord is an avenger of all these offenses. Sex has been misused by so many, and it does hurt, but God will avenge. He will do what is right. You rip off someone, you, you, you ruin relationships, God's wrath will be poured out on you. We need to take seriously all sin because God is a scary God. God without Jesus is a sight I never want to face. Without Jesus' death in my place, for I would be smashed, I would be avenged. And yet in Christ we can stand forgiven. 
And remember, whatever your struggle is, whether you're male or female, you can be certain that there are thousands of others who are going through that same thing. You are not alone. Come and share and pray together.